G'day and welcome to Occupied, your fortnightly podcast for all things occupation and occupational therapy. This episode, I got to have a chat with Dr. Anna and Dr. Kitty, and we went into absolutely everything I could possibly imagine to do with research and how to get more people doing it. I am curious to, well, I guess in the, to start with, to find out how you got where you currently are. And obviously when we were speaking the other week, you guys went to uni together. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then also did PhD together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it started to sound like Batman and Robin. <laughs> and, then, and then went separate ways. So... Kitty, where did you end up after you? Well, first, actually, tell us about your your PhD to start with, because you did that together. But yeah, what what was that about? Yeah, so both Anna and I were at the Telethon Kids Institute, it's called now in um, WA, and we both did honors projects there actually to begin with, and then um, went on to PhD. And my PhD was um, looking at post school adult life of uh, young people with Down syndrome. So, um, yeah, mainly using questionnaire-based data with um, an already established longitudinal study of um, adults with Down syndrome. And I was really interested in looking at um, kind of the occupations that these young people were engaged in post-school and then looking at associations with um, behaviour, mental health, quality of life, well-being, and also family quality of life. Awesome. And what what was what did you look at, Anna? Obviously, in the same place, same demographic. Uh, no, so a little bit different. So um, I was doing my research in a disability called Rett syndrome, which um, a lot of people may have heard of or may have not have heard of. It's relatively rare neuro- neurological uh, disability, mostly affecting females, where they look like they're developing normally until about six to eighteen months, where they go through a period of regression. So. If they were walking or crawling, they might stop. If they were babbling and talking, they might stop. Um, And they develop this really characteristic hand stereotypy, so wringing of their hands or biting of their hands. Um, And I guess the the presentation of Rett syndrome is really varied. So some individuals may need support with all activities of daily living um, and may find it really difficult to communicate. They may not be able to speak, whereas other individuals um, may be able to Um, you know, use their hands to feed themselves, to play, to engage in other activities um, and may need a bit of support with communication. So I focused on how individuals with Rett syndrome communicate and what sort of factors make it easier and harder harder for them to communicate. So kind of similar to Kitty's PhD, I had access to an already established database of um, almost everyone with a diagnosis of Rett syndrome in Australia is part of this database. where families um, complete a really comprehensive questionnaire about every two years um, about um, the individual with Rett syndrome that they're caring for. Um, They also provide video data. um, So I I was able to analyse some video data of some communicative interactions between individuals with Rett syndrome and their communication partners. Um, And I also did an additional qualitative study where I spoke to parents about how their daughters communicate, what sorts of things make it easier, what sorts of things make it harder, um, and, you know, what sorts of things are they communicating? So that was, um, yeah, the bulk of my PhD. Before we get on to like what you, like I guess the results, what you found, I'm curious because a lot of people have told me I'm not doing a PhD at this stage. I 
don't know a huge amount of the process, but everyone I've spoken to says that wherever you start is not where you end up and it kind of evolves and changes. So I'm curious to find out, I guess, your I guess, journey through that PhD and where you thought you were going to start, how that evolved, what changed, the actual, I guess, day-to-day things you were, well, not day-to-day, but the, the process you went through in doing it and then to where you ended up compared to like where you thought you were going to start from. Um, well, <laughs> I can jump in and um, definitely it is interesting looking back at my um, proposal for my PhD, you know, uh, your research proposal that you um, submit after nine months or whatever it is. Um, yeah, I was going to do these three studies. I was going to take a grounded theory approach and do these uh, qualitative interviews and um, as well as look at the data and, yeah, it just changed so much. Um, it, moment to moment and just going with it and figuring out what's working, what's not working. Once we started to get into the data and learnt much more about data analysis and how to manage those sorts of data sets after having discussions and getting to know um, the parents of the young people with Down syndrome and the people with Down syndrome themselves, um, getting honours students on board and they kind of come in and um, have uh, their own specific approach. There was one on a student that did some great um, focus groups about the meaning of well-being for young people with Down syndrome um, from their perspective. So then we're involved in those, uh, you know, those focus groups and this, so it was constantly evolving and constantly changing and I think um, Anna and I were really fortunate to be at the Telethon Kids Institute because we had a lot of amazing um, really invested and really clever people around us, not only our supervisors, but we also had mentors from uh, related areas, but might might usually take a different approach. Um, so we were just able to kind of take all of that in and, um, yeah, change the direction as we went. Yeah, I think um, you've got to be really flexible um, when you're undertaking research. What you plan to do um, usually is not what you end up doing because as Kitty mentioned that like you've got to be flexible um, to the needs of the people that you're doing research with um, so you know if you're getting to know uh, the community and their needs are different to what you propose to begin with like you need to change those um, needs um, in my research project um, I initially had planned to develop uh, a whole new communicative assessment um, for individuals with Rett syndrome based on video analysis and that just ended up being like too big and too much to be able to fit into my PhD. Um, so I had to kind of scrap that part of the PhD and instead I kind of had a mixed method study where I got to use, you know, um, survey data, qualitative data and kind of video analysis data to answer the question about how do people communicate, what makes it easier and harder. But I definitely did not um, develop that assessment and also I initially enrolled um, full-time, so I thought I'd be finishing my PhD in three years, give or take six months. I finished my PhD in like five years. Um, I enrolled full-time and then partway through, I changed to part-time and during that time uh, when I was a part-time student, I was also working part-time, so I was actually involved with some uh, disability service organisations in Western Australia that were doing some research projects of their own, so I kind of um, helped with them and kind of led a couple of different research projects um, 
so yeah, so my PhD journey definitely was different from what I expected at the beginning. Does so obviously the the data and what you're finding out as you go is going to you know deviate as with any sort of any even clinical intervention as you find things it changes where you're pointing. Did was it also or was a factor also I guess your skill set around certain research things or did you feel like you pretty much had that on board before you started or that definitely um, influenced the way I went for sure and and the main thing that I'm thinking of is um, statistical data analysis because we did have a bit of a bigger data set to work with um, once I actually figured out how to really use um, Stata the statistical um, software package um, had a really great um, a statistician at the institute who um, who just speak to me in a way that I understood um, data analysis and and the pennies started to drop and then you know you're doing some pre preliminary analysis and finding out and then I'm like oh so how are we gonna figure what that actually means can we kind of apply some other sort of um, uh, test to figure that out and what is what does that mean in the real world and so definitely for me as I learned more about how, what we can do with different data analyses approaches um, that kind of opened up the scope of what what I wanted to do and what I wanted to find out from the data. Yeah I definitely think you um, particularly as like a PhD is a training program you are doing a PhD because you want to learn more about different uh, like the um, analysis strategies and techniques so for me I definitely had to learn a lot so my honours project I did a little bit of um, kind of quantitative data analysis but in my PhD I did a lot more um, and then I also did a qualitative study which I hadn't done before so I had to kind of learn from that um, and I also did like analysis of video interactions, which was something completely new to me. So I had to make sure that um, like my everyone on my supervisory team had the different skills that I needed um, to learn so they could teach me. Um, and if there were things that they couldn't teach me, um, I could uh, seek additional support. So like, as Kitty mentioned, there was um, a really great statistician at the Telephone Kids Institute, which we were able to um, meet with and talk with and really get a good understanding for the data set and what sorts of approaches we can use and learn how to interpret um, the findings of those analyses because it can be really difficult. And I think, yeah, I always like kind of look back on that, the the quantitative data analysis that I that I learned during my PhD and it like keeps coming um, keeps coming back in hand. Like I keep keep um, thinking about all the stuff I learned and still use it today. Because I think, yeah, and this is based on I guess my personal feelings over the years and a lot of people that I've spoken to I think one of the big barriers to even just research in general for most clinicians um, and especially a PhD is people are worried they don't have the skill set before they start uh, and I don't I don't think it's hugely well known that a lot of that stuff you kind of learn during the process of of doing it as opposed to you know you need you need to be able to do research before you start and then you're just actually in there to do it kind of thing. It doesn't really work like that as, as much. No, that's exactly right. And like, it, it's a, it's a, it's a training um, thing, a PhD, but you, you know, no PhD supervisor is going to expect you to have 
those skills before you start. That's, you know, you definitely will be have strengths in some areas and then you work with your supervisors to identify the other areas that you need to kind of um, upskill in quickly um, and then you undertake, you know, if, if it's coursework at the university you're at or do you need to identify um, a specific, you know, mentor in a specific area or other courses that you can enrol in to upskill in one particular area. Definitely, um, yeah, you definitely don't need those skills before you start. And the, even, you know, people, I know people, uh, you know, the students that I'm lecturing now, the undergrads, no one likes the idea of data analysis, statistical data analysis, everyone just, you know, rolls their eyes or goes blank, turns their ears off, whatever it is. Um, but once you get into it, um, it's really, really fun. And you do get to, you use your clinical knowledge and you apply it to these data sets. It's not totally, it's not a separate, a whole separate thing. And if you've got a really good clinical understanding, you know what happens in the real world, you can use data to actually do some really exciting things. Because I know, like I, I started engineering before I did OT, and then went, nah, this is this isn't for me, and I chose OT because it was about as far away from math as I could possibly <laughs> find. And then I still remember hitting a research subject, and I think it was like second year, and just being giving an SPSS assignment and just going, "You are kidding!" I'm like <laughs> I chose this degree to get away from this, and it's followed me here. Yeah, and I, I guess um, uh, for clinicians or other OTs out there who are interested in getting, you know, undertaking research, but are kind of um, maybe a bit scared or like don't have the skills. I think having a, like seeking out a mentor, which can actually help guide you and help you develop the skills that you need um, is a good kind of first step. Um, like at the moment I'm working uh, with uh, collaborators um, up in Northern Queensland who they're not researchers, they're kind of, they're clinicians. Um, and so I've kind of had that mentoring relationship with them where I've kind of mentored them through the process of um, obtaining ethics um, uh, um, approval for their study, kind of helping them uh, identify what sorts of questions they want to ask um, in a survey um, of health professionals working with um, individuals on the autism spectrum. Um, and I also like kind of will help lead them through the analysis stage of that as well. Like I, I think, um, yeah, finding people which have the skills that you want to develop. Um, yeah, is this one? Yeah, just kind of put yourself out there. Because I think that's that's what I remember when I was when I was working clinically. One of the things because in the state health service I was working in pushing for us to engage in research was something that they brought up every year, but no one ever did. Uh, and then I remember them trying to bring in some more practical approaches to it in that they were trying to encourage people to, and this is just more than our district, it's like statewide, uh, make connections with the universities uh, so that, you know, it's not such a big, like, it's similar to what you're saying, like tie in with someone who knows the research, like, you know, the clinical stuff, tie in with someone who knows research and see what you can do together. Uh, I, I'm sure it, don't, it didn't happen very much in my team because we were just under the pump. Um, but I, I, I'm sure that even just that little recommendation triggered some, you know, probably some pretty cool research around the, the state somewhere, maybe in Southeast Queensland or something like that. But uh, I think that's a that's a big thing, and something that I've heard from a lot of clinicians is I just don't 
don't feel like they have the ability to do it or don't really don't really know where to start. Even if they don't have the ability, they don't even know where to get that ability because they don't know where the, the start point would be. Where where do you think might be I guess a some or some entry into research? Obviously you can go back to university if you wanted to, but is there other ways that clinicians might be able to engage in research somehow? Um just as you were speaking, I was kind of thinking about like lots of um, lots of places, lots of practices, lots of um, different government departments have quality improvement activities, um, and a lot of the time they are kind of research based. Um, you know, there's there's a there's a problem, a problem has been identified, and the team wants to improve whether it's you know uh, delivering of care or something within how the team functions or works. Um, like that within itself is a research project, um, but you just don't, I guess, have the uh, robustness around it that you haven't got like an ethics application and you're probably not going to get a publication out of it. But I've been to a, a number of like OT conferences where individuals have presented on their quality improvement activities. Um, and I'm always sitting there going, well, well, it'd be really great if they did have an ethics um, approval for this because then it could be published and it could be shared more broadly, um, nationally, internationally, people could read it and learn about it. Um, so I think, you know, I think a lot of people probably might be involved in quality improvement activities and kind of maybe helping them see that that is actually what, what they're actually doing is research. And if they kind of put some rig, a little bit more rigor around it, um, you know, you have a, a, you know, a really good project there, which you can publish, you can share. Um, yeah, that's, that's what I'm thinking. I'm not sure. What about you, Kitty? Yeah, definitely. And I guess um, I it, it just comes back to me uh, to finding someone that you can talk to about it honestly and openly and just having having a bit of a informal, frank discussion like I want to do this, but I don't really know where to start and it doesn't it you know uh, if you can identify um, someone who does research it doesn't actually have to be specifically in the same area that you want to do your research in because um, the research process is usually um, quite similar so you know Brock if you were really interested in um, OT mental health if you just found someone that you like talking to or you can kind of understand or That's you can just easy. Yeah, true, true. You're probably a bad example, but um, yeah. I just, I just, I just found I like finding people who are just kind of a bit like me in the way they think. Um, and if they're in a separate field, it doesn't matter. Um, mm -hmm. because I can still pick pick their brains and understand, um, you know, where to start. Because I think that, and just what you mentioned before, Anna. Uh, I remember I was at the Victorian conference in for 2014 and I'm fairly I was trying to remember who this was the other day because I was talking to them about it. I think it was Rachel McDonald who mentioned exactly that in that people are doing quality improvement things at work and literally all they need to do to enter that into sort of the research realm is to add some rigor and that yeah. that's that's what she was presenting as uh, the, the concept of her talk was we need more research essentially and here's an easy way that most clinicians are already sort of halfway there without even knowing it um how in that sort of instance how 
how do you add rigor to a, say any sort of quality improvement like that? Is it just a matter of going through ethics or like, is it a matter of formalizing it or what sort of thing that would, would clinicians have to do? Oh, this is, this is a big topic. How, how do we do rigorous research? <laughs> it's a topic of its own. Um, and I guess every, every type of research project, um, depending on the methods you're using, um, will have requirements for different, like, I guess, levels of rigor. Um, but I guess uh, generally you would want to try and remove as much bias as possible, try and get a, as big of a sample, as a representative sample as possible. Um, and, yeah, deciding how to go about that, I think, kind of comes from speaking with people who may have more experience. So if you want to, say, do a survey of, um, you know, of your patients around um, how satisfied they are with the OT they, they've been provided. Um, you know, those certain ways you can go about asking those sorts of questions to make sure that the response you're getting is more accurate. You know, there are certain measures that might already measure some of the constructs around satisfaction with healthcare, um, which have already been tested, which you could use. So I guess it's about knowing that those sorts of things um, exist and knowing it's quite difficult and quite specific to the specific research project. Um, and I think having a mentor to kind of sit down with and saying, this is my idea. Um, they can kind of help be like, okay, well, have you thought about how many people are you going to get? You know, if you really want to have a good, a good sample size, you know, you need 50 or a hundred people or, um, you know, what sorts of questions are you asking? Or have you thought about, you know, that's a leading question. Maybe perhaps you need to phrase it this way. So you're not leading the individual, um, yeah, and it, yeah, you definitely would want some more kind of processes in place. So um, when you plan a research project, you kind of put a protocol together. So um, you want it to give um, each participant the same opportunity to participate. So you're asking the same sorts of questions and giving them the same opportunities um, so that it's comparable between participants. Um, and, and getting ethics approval, uh, I think, is key. Um, so that an ethics committee will make sure that um, the questions that you're, you're asking um, are, are okay to ask and that the different procedures that you're suggesting are, are fine. Um, and it also does allow for you then to really publish your results and share them more widely than if it is just a kind of small quality improvement activity. So it sounds like finding the mentor, the right mentor, I guess, is still even in that sort of entry level uh, area is still like really high up there of kind of importance. I think it yes, just saves I think a lot so. of time, doesn't it? I mean, you could go and read all about this and get the research methods books and really kind of immerse yourself in the specific methodological approach you're taking. But if you can just sit down with someone and say, what are the key things I'm missing here? It'll just save you a, a whole heap of time. <laughs> That is also good. And I think that time is another reason why I've heard people that they're just like, I can't do that. I don't have time. I don't have time. Every, everyone's under the pump now and expected to do more with less. And uh, I think I think because research in a lot of health services isn't it, – it, it's kind of secondary. So it's like as soon as there's no time, that's the first thing that sort of gets ignored. Whereas I think if it was held in a more in like a higher priority, uh, it, it, we'd find time. There's always time. We can find time to watch TV. We can find time <laughs> to do other things. Like, not saying that we should stop watching TV or anything, but uh, 
so what did we what did what did you guys find? What was the outcome? So you, Anna, you use like a mixed method. What's what was your predominant sort of method, Kitty? Mainly a quantitative approach, looking at um, and then looking at a number of different um, uh, kind of outcomes in adulthood. So looked at um, what type of employment some of these young adults were involved in, and was you know was it a, an open employment setting, a sheltered employment setting, or or lots of um, young people with Down syndrome are uh, taking part in like a day recreation program type thing. Um, yeah, and, and pretty much we found um, to do with that at least, uh, that even if young people with Down syndrome were involved in an open employment setting as little as one hour a week, we found a difference in the family quality of life in that it was better for those adults that, and we, it, within our statistical model, we adjusted for all those other, th other things that we think influence quality of life, including, um, you know, level of functioning and activities of daily living of the young person, uh, their challenging behaviours, um, how severe or, or not they were, all of these other things were accounted for age, gender, um, but we still found an association with the importance of um, these young people with Down syndrome being in an open employment setting for even if it's, yeah, one to two hours a week. So open employment being just sort of general paid employment, like normal, regular yeah, paid exactly. Yeah. And this may have been with um, additional support. So it might be that young person uh, who's uh, packing shelves at Woolworths, that would be considered an open employment setting. So it can include support, so, you know, modified work tasks, that kind of stuff. Definitely, yes. Oh, cool. Mm. What about you, Anna? Because with your mixed methods, is that... Because I don't know much about mixed methods, I don't know much about anything by the sounds of it. But anyway, um, was it what what methods? What what did you? Yeah, I know you briefly yeah. touched on it, but what what did you do and what did you find? Yeah, so um, in my PhD, I started off with a qualitative project um, where I, I spoke with um, caregivers um, of individuals with uh, Rett syndrome about how they thought individuals communicated. So in what ways um, some some people spoke but in what other ways than just speaking did people communicate? Um, uh, and a lot of people talked about how individuals with rate syndrome use eye gaze. So looking at items or looking at people or, or even using eye gaze technology where they can use their eyes to kind of control a computer screen like a mouse would. Um, and that, so I spoke to parents about how individuals communicate and what sorts of things make it easier. So um, the attitudes of the person that's communicating with them were um, really important um, and sorts of things that made it harder were kind of um, physical limitations. So a lot of individuals with Rett syndrome um, may not have very good hand functions. So they can't point, may not be able to use those as gestures. Um, and, and if they're not mobile and not walking, say they're in a wheelchair, then they're really... It's really um, on the communication partner to be paying attention to them and to be there to, to be able to communicate. Um, so the findings from that study kind of helped me identify what sorts of things should I analyse from the um, survey data. Um, so what sort of relationships should I look at with the survey data? Um, so then I was kind of able, I guess, to confirm some of the findings that we found from the qualitative, qualitative data with the survey data. Um, and then also with the video data was, I guess, another form of data to kind of help confirm what parents were saying. And so in the videos, I was looking at um, 
choice-making interaction. So individuals were asked um, to provide the individual threat syndrome um, a choice between, I think, three or more items um, and it just and videotape it. So these were kind of naturalistic, you know, semi-naturalistic. Um, it was with um, communication partners that they knew, with items that they knew, um, and I kind of looked at and kind of coded how were people communicating, were they making choices, um, and did some kind of looking at what sorts of things might make it easier or harder for them to make choices um, in those situations. So kind of looking at, yeah, all the different types of data. Awesome. Was it when you were, so when you were, well, for both of you, when you were looking at it, were you looking at it as sort of OT specific or were you looking at it as general, from a general perspective or what was your, your I guess, frame of reference? Um, I think we both used the international, the ICF, so the International Classification for Functioning, um, Disability and Health, um, as kind of a really broad look at it because um, I get, you know, and using the ICF communication is considered an occupation. Um, and although usually, you know, speech language pathologists um, work more in that area, when we're looking at individuals which, um, you know, may have quite severe physical limitations, may require the use um, of aided, um, augmentative and aided communication devices, um, it is pretty important to have OTs involved in those situations where they can kind of help, uh, you know, assess access to different devices and different ways of communicating. Um, but throughout my research, I used the kind of ICF to broadly look at communication as an occupation and what other um, occupations or functioning in other occupational areas or kind of um, individual kind of uh, functioning in different areas kind of impact communication. Um, so kind of looking at, say, how hand function may impact how someone mm -hmm. communicates, how mobility may impact how someone communicates, but then also looking at environmental factors. So how does a communication partner impact how someone communicates their attitudes, their knowledge, their views? Um, so that was the approach that I used. Mm. And I think that that's a really interesting question, Brock. And now um, coming back to lecture undergraduates, it's been an interesting process for me to look back on like the body of research that I've been involved in with so far, even though, um, Often I wasn't in an OT context and usually not with other OTs around. I had Anna at the Institute, but then after that I did a postdoc at UNSW in, in the School of Psychiatry, so no other OTs there. But looking back um, through my publications is definitely a theme of occupation. So I think that even though it wasn't... Um, always you know I wasn't always like oh how what how, what would the OT approach be here I think it just happened that way because that's the way I was thinking I knew you know I was always interested in behavior and mental health and well-being and therefore I always was interested in the occupation that people were involved with um, be that the young people with down syndrome or um, autistic adults um, so yeah that's actually been kind of an interesting process for me more recently Brock and when you published did you publish within OT or did you publish outside of it um, for intellectual disability uh, for the PhD related stuff, it was mainly um, intellectual disability specific journals um, 
and disability and rehab is kind of an OT. I haven't actually published in an OT journal. So, um, and, and that, that also, I think, came from um, the suggestions of our supervisors and our, um, uh, you know, mentors at that time. And, you know, there's all, we want uh, high impact journals. Um, sometimes we like to publish, you know, disability work in journals that aren't disability specific. So then we're trying to get those people who are outside the disability field to have an understanding of, you know, for example, um, you know, a more mental health or psychiatry related journal. Can we get something published in there which is about autism and about intellectual disability. So then we have psychiatrists and people that are in that mental health field thinking about how they would kind of treat or uh, work with a person with intellectual disability or a person with autism. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, choosing what journal to publish in um, is like a really important task and you have to be quite strategic and it's really about who do you want to read this what message are you trying to get out there and who do you want it to reach um and i guess because uh, like similar to kitty uh, like i haven't necessarily researched a specific ot intervention or you know looked at ot services or um or anything like that specifically which may be more interesting to an ot journal um readership um, and I've similarly published in more kind of broader um, disability and health journals um, where the, the kind of work that I've done in Rett syndrome and, and also in autism, I think is more likely to um, reach, you know, the, the desired audience with, within those journals. Um, but I think if there was um, something that I was to publish, which is very OT specific, I would definitely consider publishing in an OT specific journal. So one thing you mentioned, I think Kitty mentioned before, was impact factor. And I know a lot of people will have seen that like when they go and look for journals because they usually publish it at the top of their little page. How does that work? What is what is an impact factor of a journal? Oh, so uh, generally it's, uh, I think you can get like a one-year impact factor or like a five-year impact factor. But if you were to publish something in that journal, um, the impact factor is generally how many times would you expect to be cited uh, within a year if it's a one-year impact factor. So the impact factors which have, the journals which have high impact factors means that more people are reading them, more people are like citing out of them. And it's generally, and this is just general, that they um, are publishing higher kind of quality research. So when, so when, yeah, so kind of high impact is you're assuming that the research within the journal is of higher quality, therefore more people are reading it and more people are more likely to cite it. It's really challenging though, because in it depends what field you're in. And for example, in autism, uh, even the you know impact uh, the journals with the highest impact factor in autism, uh, I think the highest is molecular autism at 5.2 or something. And the lowest would be 1.1 uh, for, uh, for OT specific journals. Um, the impact factors are usually quite low. Um, I haven't checked them all recently, but I don't know if there's an OT journal with an impact factor of four. I could be wrong here, but I'm pretty sure they're quite low. Um, intellectual disability, they're also quite low. But if you look at like the Lancet or something, you might get be getting up to 30. So it, it's a it's a kind of a difficult thing um, to get your head around and 
there's also ERA ratings, ERA ratings, which um, universities are becoming quite interested in as well. Um, and then there's the whole debate of um, open access versus, you know, um, those journals that you need to have a subscription for and, you know, who are we doing this research for? We want people to be able to read it, therefore let's publish in open access. However, to publish in an open access journal, there's a fee of two, about two and a half grand per journal article. So then you've got this, yeah, for one, if you don't have, you know, a, an amazing NHMRC scholarship that's going to pay for that, who's going to pay for that? Even though I'd like oh, yeah. everyone to be able to access and read it. So there's a lot of um, things to take into account and, and sometimes it does depend on the institution you're associated with and what they're, you know, what what's deemed the best from their um, perspective but then also you know what you want to do as a researcher and what's the purpose and yeah who are you trying to talk to with this stuff so it's it it can be confusing because i would assume just based on my knowledge of social media that having something that's open access is going to increase the accessibility to it which means it's going to increase you know potentially increase the number of times it's cited the number of times it's read etc Mm -hmm. purely yeah. and simply because people can get to it more. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It seems like a strange yeah. system. But also with um, with the, I guess, invention of open access, um, they've also there's also been the um, kind of increase in kind of dodgy journals. So <laughs> I, get, I get a number of emails. Like I think every day I get at least one email from some random journal, which probably isn't legit, asking me to submit a paper because they've scoured the internet for all the presentations I've done at different conferences and have come up that I've done a poster once on oral health um, in autism and they're asking me to like publish in some kind of obscure dental journal when you look it up it doesn't look legit like you know a lot of there's a lot of journals which aren't even legit and they're just asking you to submit a paper um, they will publish it and obviously you have to pay open access fees, but then it might not even be a reputable journal and you've just kind of given this fake journal $2,000. Um, yeah. So I guess, and I guess I don't want to be scaring people if they're kind of like, yeah, get into research. It's really cool. No, no, but I think that's the reality of it. That's, <laughs> that's, something, that, journey. that's yeah. something that, you know, most people may not be aware of because even I get it. I mean, I, I get emails and usually they start with Dr. Brock, so I know it's dodgy because that's not me. <laughs> Uh, and for and one, yeah. that's my first name and not my last name. I'm not a doctor. <laughs> so, yeah, there, there's a lot. And I, like I said, I don't know how they find, I don't even know how they found my email address because, like I said, this is a new job. So any presentations I've done in the past have never been linked with this email, my, like my work email, but they found me. So yeah. how, how, um, can, how can people tell the difference? Like, can you um, tell the difference? Google. <laughs> yeah, I think definitely make sure you, you Google the website and have a good look at it. But some of them are pretty sophisticated. So I think, um, again, talking to other people, like, have you heard of this journal? Um, and it's, they do the same thing with conferences. So there are lots of fake conferences. So you'll get emails saying, oh, could you come? You've been invited as a, I've been invited to like keynotes at cancer conferences where I've like never done any research on cancer. I keep getting invited to physiotherapy conferences. Like, <laughs> you don't want that. Um, looking, yeah, so I think looking for the names of the key people in your field who, you know, are, are, 
if you are interested in research in an area, you're probably going to do a bit of reading of the literature in that area and figure out who the key groups are um, and, you know, the, the key kind of people who publish and then looking at where they publish and um, or looking at who's on the um, editorial boards and things like that. And if you're seeing some um, names that are ringing a bell, that's one way to kind of go about thinking, oh, maybe this is a, legit, a legitimate kind of um, source. I guess if you're, you're researching, doing some research into the field and reading some articles and stuff, you kind of become familiar with the, I guess, the who's who of that sort of mm -hmm. topic, that area. Um, and, yeah, like you said, having a look at where they publish, but I think a lot of the journals that you're actually going to find when you're looking for the topics are probably going to be the journals that you're going to want to be looking back to putting back into, mm -hmm. I guess. Definitely. Awesome. So... Well, I've, I think um, it's pretty amazing and awesome what Anna's doing at the moment. Um, yes. And for an OT audience to hear that, um, you know, uh, Anna's uh, got a Fulbright scholarship and she's over in Portland, Oregon um, with an amazing research group. Um, so both Anna and I are interested in research with autistic adults now, post-PhD. We both uh, moved into the... Um, autism field and specifically in adulthood and um, yeah we both worked with the autism CRC as postdocs. I was there at UNSW for three and a half years and Anna was at UQ um, and then I had a baby uh, and moved up to the Gold Coast to do some lecturing and Anna got a Fulbright scholarship. <laughs> yeah um yeah, so I guess uh, I was talking to uh, Brock earlier before um, he came onto the call, Kitty, and he's asked me, you know, have you always wanted to travel and live somewhere else? And yes, I have. <laughs> so um, whilst I was whilst I was finishing my PhD, um, Kitty, you actually um, told me about this amazing opportunity in Brisbane. Like, you know, I know you're still finishing your PhD, but it's, you know, you're almost done. And I know you wanted to live somewhere else. Um, there's an opportunity uh, to be a postdoc um, at UQ um, funded by the Autism CRC. So I was really lucky and fortunate um, to land that position and I stayed there um, for almost three years. Um, and during that time, um, I got really interested in um, co-produced research with autistic adults. Um, so making sure that the research that I'm doing is alongside and together with the autistic community and actually having autistic individuals as part of the research team um, to make sure that uh, the research that I'm doing is meeting their needs and their priority areas, um, that they're involved in kind of data collection to make sure that the way we're collecting data is appropriate um, to make sure that the sorts of questions that we're asking will be interpreted the way we want them to be interpreted. Um, and also um, having autistic, autistic adults involved in the analysis of data, because when I read a response from an autistic individual, I might read it and say, oh, I think this means that, but an autistic individual will read it and say, well, no, actually, you've misinterpreted, it actually means this. Um, and then so I got really interested in that whole process and wanted to learn more about how can I make sure that the research I do in the future is really um, well, um, well co-produced. Um, so there's this really amazing research team um, here based at Portland State University um, called ASPIRE. And I'm really naughty because I forgot what that acronym stands for. Um, I think autist, 
autistic adult partnership in in research or, or something like that um and uh, which is co-led by um doctors uh christina nicolades and dr um dora raymaker um dora dora raymaker is an autistic researcher uh and christina is a um got a background uh, as a, a medical doctor um, and so they kind of got together 12 years ago and developed this partnership where all the work and all the research they do is co-produced. Um, they have a team of community partners, um, which consist of a number of autistic adults, a number um, of caregivers to autistic individuals, and also individuals that kind of work um, in different organisations, um, whether they're providing healthcare services and other services. Um, and so I really wanted to come over here to learn from them about how they've kind of gone about developing this research team and how they work. Um, but also I wanted to work specifically on a project here. Um, their team have developed a really um, cool um, online healthcare toolkit for autistic adults, um, which has a range of resources for individuals to access and also for their primary healthcare providers to access or GPs to access. Um, but there isn't much, I guess, support or resources um, for around supporting autistic adults in hospitals. So I'm actually over here specifically working on a project to adapt their healthcare toolkit, which is designed for use with GPs, um, to be used within hospital settings. So within an ED setting and inpatient settings. Um, so I recently got ethical approval. So I'm going, so I'm starting with doing a qualitative study where I'll be talking with autistic adults about their hospital experiences and then getting their feedback and opinions around how we can adapt the existing toolkit for use within hospitals. So kind of what additional items might we, might we need to add um, specific to hospital settings. And I'll be talking to hospital staff, um, some medical and nursing staff, and also key infirm key informants, so individuals which may have more of a leadership role within the hospital, um, which can really kind of um, help me understand what's needed to kind of implement this resource in a hospital setting. Um, now we're doing that um, within a one a particular hospital here. Um, yeah, so that's kind of what I'm doing. And yeah, I don't know what else to say. <laughs> <laughs> uh it's, it's super relevant, I think, for an OT audience because a lot of what um, is coming out or has come out from this co-produced research is um, the sensory experiences of autistic adults and how that is crippling their ability to access these healthcare services. So it won't be a surprise to the OT audience mm. what Anna suggests, you know, the the um, fluorescent lighting in an emergency room or even in a GP room, um, the, you know, potentially the clutter, the sounds, uh, you know, all of those things that we probably know and um, yeah, yeah. OTs see and are working with every day. Um, so that's why it's really fantastic to have an OT um, in that position that Anna is in because she has such a good understanding of all those things. and. Um, talking to autistic adults about that and then actually recommending some um, changes with the support of this international research group who are already doing excellent work in that area. So just yeah, like just to clarify, like the Fulbright, just for those who don't know, is an international, essentially like a scholarship scheme for um, research? Yeah, so, yeah. It, the, so Fulbright um, is an, like an American scholarship scheme. Um, so 
I guess America has different relate like has Fulbright kind of relationships with a number of different countries. Um, so the American um, Australian Fulbright Commission are funding me to come over here for ten months. Um, and oh, so the Fulbright is uh, sends Australians to America, and it's all about cultural exchange and also knowledge exchange. So part of it is that I kind of come here and I learn about how. Um, things are done in the US health system, learn about how they're doing research with this population group and also sharing my experiences of, oh, this is how we do it in Australia or, hey, like this is what I do. Perhaps you guys could do it this way or this is a really cool thing that you guys do. I'm going to take that home and do that at home. Um, there are actually different uh, category levels that individuals can apply for. Um, so I applied for a postdoctoral research scholarship um so i finished my phd i'm eligible to to apply for one of those but also there are ones available to phd students so if you're undertaking a phd you can apply to do part of your phd in the us um, and there are also a number of professional categories I, I can't remember exactly but if you're a professional in the field so if you're an occupational therapist and you want to come to the us um, to learn about something really cool that's happening in a hospital or in a particular service that isn't happening in Australia and you, you know, and it, you know, um, you need to come to the US to learn about it. You can apply for like a professional scholarship, um, which I think are a little bit shorter in duration. So I'm here for 10 months and I think the professional scholarships are a bit shorter. Um, but I guess that's an opportunity for um, professionals um, to kind of get out of Australia and learn about what's happening in the US. Um, yeah, so my, my plans, I guess, for coming back home um, next year, in July next year, will be around whether I can implement some of the stuff that I've learned here within an Australian healthcare system. Have you, have you found, is there any, like, sort of specific to research, I guess, techniques that are different between, say, how Australians implement them and how Americans are implementing them? Or is it more just more around the healthcare context being different? I think the, the biggest thing is the, the healthcare context is quite different. Um, like in terms of, I guess, preparing for the research has been very similar in that I had to prepare an ethics application. I had to prepare a project protocol. Um, I'm here working with this uh, team where everything is co-produced. So I've had the community partners read over my suggested interview questions. Um, we have a meeting next week where they're going to look over my suggested consent forms. Um, so I guess the kind of the process part seems very similar mm -hmm. um but i think the biggest differences is the healthcare system and kind of wrapping around the like the healthcare system here um and how it's funded and who has access to what um it's been it's been really uh really really eye-opening um and really really interesting and it's kind of given a lot of context to, to i guess some of the stuff you hear as australians in australia like about oh you know it's all privatized and lots of people don't have access to it and, and, and in America and this and that, but it really provides being here provides really good context for kind of understanding why the system is set up the way it is and what, what are some of the benefits and what are some of the um, perhaps, you know, downfalls of the system here. Yeah. Cause I've got uh, a good friend of mine who I spoke to on the podcast before Michelle Perryman, who's English, but is currently finishing off or is keep or is doing her PhD at, uh, University of Wisconsin Milwaukee, and I remember talking to her, and she was saying that because she started in the UK, when she got to the US, it was almost like a matter of having to one learn the health system and then readjust a lot of the the things she was doing uh, and the way she was looking at it because it was a completely different context and it wasn't really going to fit. 
So I I think would do you think it would be different for say like Michelle who's a PhD student who's if she had to continue doing the research as is, it, it just wouldn't have been relevant in America as opposed to actually doing the, like starting the research over there, I guess would be, would be a different process. There'd be some sort of change process, I guess, in them. If you, ch- oh, can't speak. If you'd taken your research from wherever you started and then continued it in another country as opposed to starting it in that country. Yeah. Like, I guess an example would be like, say if I, um, plan to do this project within a hospital within it like I, I proposed to do this project in an Australian hospital and then I came over here to the US and I was like great I'm going to do this project here um, using the same methods and the same recruitment techniques as I would in Australia um, I think it could work but um, like even the how what what individuals are called within hospitals like you know you there are hospital providers and they're the doctors and the nurses whereas we don't have that we don't necessarily call people providers within within an Australian context. So even knowing who I'm recruiting and how I mm. refer to them is different. So what I plan to, the way I might plan to engage, also the, the way I plan to engage professionals and recruit individuals in Australia might be different to what I'm going to be doing here because there are different established networks. Um, there are different, you know, ways I can recruit individuals. Um, but I think at the core, I, for my particular research, um, it might be quite similar because I'm asking people about their experiences within a hospital setting and then asking them, how can, how can we make this better? Use looking at this existing resource, how can we change this resource to make it better for when you go into hospital in the future or for when other autistic adults have to go into hospital? So I think those sorts of questions would be quite Similar, I guess, in terms of the Australian, the US healthcare system, in that the hospital itself is not really that different. The way a hospital functions is not really that different. You have doctors, you have nurses, you have allied, allied health, you have bright lights, you have the same sort of busyness. Um, I guess the major difference here is how um, how the hospitals are funded yeah. and how you're billed for it. That's the, really the biggest difference in terms of, I guess, the care you're being provided and how that care is being provided is not super different. So I can kind of ask the same sorts of questions, but it might be really different if you're doing a different project where it's kind of um, much more dependent on like the context mm. of the, the local area. Is the scope, just having a look at the Fulbright website and it talks about uh, one of its main aims being binational research collaboration. Is there scope for people to do projects like across both nations so like the same sort of research but looking at like so they can actually compare or is it mainly just more bringing the researchers knowledge into that team to try and no i guess uh, like fulbright's pretty like um i think they're pretty open as to what you propose as a project so when you apply for a fulbright scholarship you kind of have to propose a specific project that you're working on so if you were say say if i proposed that i was just coming to the u.s to do some additional data data collection which I then compare to stuff that's happening in Australia that might be possible but I guess um, I, the, the key thing is about about Fulbright is that the reason I had to come here is because no one um, as of yet or by the or when I applied for this scholarship was really doing co-produced research in such a way that the team here were but like they have a really um, like they've been doing it for 12 years they have a really good system set up it's all very um, 
oh, like yeah, they have it's you know well meetings for yeah, well established. Yeah. Um, and there's like a kind of clear plan and pathway to follow in terms of doing a research project within this team. Um, and so one of the reasons I think I got the Fulbright was because I had to come to the US mm. to learn those skills because no, I couldn't learn those skills in, within Australia. So I think, yeah, you could probably do some sort of comparative research, but it might, um, have to be very might not be as, yeah, might not be as interesting because you kind of really have to say that why you have to come to the US to do your project and why can't you just learn what you want to learn within the Australian context. So is that, that's obviously a skill that you're now very, or maybe before very passionate about. Is that something you yeah. are hopefully planning on bringing back to Australia and implementing over this side or are you going somewhere else? Are you coming back no. to Australia? Who knows? <laughs> I have I have to say that I'm coming back to no I have to come back to Australia because of the She's visa. She's definitely that I'm on. coming back to Australia. Wink, wink. Yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, that is that is the plan that um, when I get back to Australia, that I can um, implement uh, this sort of methodology within my own research, but also share what I've learned with other researchers. So I'm still quite connected with the autism CRC. Um, so I hope to share what I've learned with um, with that network of of researchers. Um, and yeah, I, I'd be keen to kind of share what I've learned in, in whatever way I can. Perhaps I'll present at an OT conference. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the big part of it is um, I wanted to learn about this methodology. Then when I get back to Australia, kind of share um, and also implement it within my own research, but also share with other people what I've learned. So, Kitty, you'll be uh, taking this up soon, I assume. Oh, yeah, trying. I'll learn what I can <laughs> off Anna. <laughs> Kitty? Kitty's Kitty's pretty good at um Kitty's I, and I guess that's the thing with co-production is there are different um different levels involved in co-production. So a lot of researchers are doing elements um and doing you know you know some some of the research is co-produced um but maybe not across not from start to finish um and so that was what I was doing before coming over here like I was doing some parts of my research were co-produced so I may have had an advisory. Um, committee which had some individuals on the spectrum on it for a specific project but they weren't necessarily involved in the development of the research question or they weren't necessarily involved very closely with the analysis of the data whereas the the methodology that's used here is that the the partners are very closely involved in all stages of the research um, project and so when I go back home that's what I'm hoping that I will have um, really good involvement and close involvement across all the stages of the research project. But there are lots of researchers um, doing co-produced work um, in Australia. And, you know, Kitty has has got some examples of her own research where it's been co-produced. I guess it's just becoming more of a focus um, for research, not only in the autism field, intellectual disability, but I think across a lot of other health conditions because of the focus now from even, you know, NHMRC, the national kind of funding body for, for research, they have a, um, a identified the importance of research translation, you know, translating what you're finding um, from your studies, publish the, publishing them, yes, but also then taking it that step further and making sure um, there's changes in policy or the recommendations are applicable to certain services. Um, so that next step has um, historically not been done very well um, and it's becoming more of a focus. And to ensure research is translatable, 
um, one of the best ways to ensure that is having, um, you know, is if it's autistic people or if it's people with intellectual disability, having them involved at the uh, design stage of your research. So what are you doing? Why are you doing it? Is it going to make a difference in the real world? So I think um, slowly people are understanding the importance of it. Um, and but we can get a lot better at it. And I think visiting groups like um, uh, the Portland group is really important. The other thing I was curious, and this is going to be, I think I already know the answer based on what you guys have been saying so far, but it's something that I've talked about with a few people, um, is about, I, I think a lot of people, another view they have around research is, you know, obviously they want to expand the knowledge base of the profession, which is, you know, gen general speaking, that's the whole point. And I think a lot of people think they have to do that from within. So they have to find something completely new and they have to firstly work out if no one's ever done it before and then they have to look into it, see if it works, etc., publish it, and that's how they expand it. And I think a lot of people sort of miss the point of having a look outside the profession for things that other professions or other fields may have looked at and then using bits and pieces to, I guess, trigger like even just the, the idea of... of what they might want to look into, but bringing things, essentially bringing things from outside the profession into it to try and expand the profession's knowledge base as opposed to just starting from scratch with some brand new idea that came to you in a dream. Well, there's there's so much um, in OT that we haven't, um, uh, that we kind of know, but we don't really have an evidence base for yet. Um, there's so much work to be done in research in OT. So probably a lot of what um, your listeners are doing day to day and they know it works because they do it every day, you, you know, whether it's an occupation-based kind of approach and they're seeing the differences every day, but there's not a lot in the literature about it and and showing how it changes so there's a lot there's a lot of scope in ot for um you know what what you think is new knowledge uh you know what you know it could potentially be new knowledge because it's not actually published yet mm. um yeah there's a, a yeah it's there's a lot to do <laughs> yeah i was um talking to a friend today actually you know there's you know there's two things there's evidence-based practice and it's practice-based evidence um so there are a lot of things where people are practicing a certain a technique or something and they're doing it because they can see that it works for um for their clients for their patients and they keep doing it but there's actually no documented evidence showing that hey what i'm doing actually works and i think and, and, so, and then therefore some people might be like, well, what's the point of researching this? I know it works. Well, the person on the other side of Australia doesn't know it works and they're going to have to go through trial and error to figure out something that works when, yeah, you've got something that's working. So I think um, basically I'm making the case for practice-based evidence is good, but it needs to, I think, lead to like uh, publishable evidence or documented evidence so then other people can learn from it because Otherwise, and this may be what has happened in the past in OT, otherwise there are people doing all this stuff around the globe and some of the stuff they're doing is probably the same stuff, but people are having to think about it and learn about it afresh 
um, because it hasn't been documented by the person on the mm. other side of the of the, of yeah. the world. And with that as well, it's really important when it comes to making arguments, justifications and rationales to funding bodies. Why are you doing what you're doing? Why do you need this much time as an OT to be funded? Why do you actually need to do it? Uh, why do you need to be paid for the 45 minutes travel to do it in their home rather than just, you know, under the whichever funding body it is, you could just get them to come into the clinic. If we had an evidence base, you know, and the, the, it's, it is growing slowly, but if we have a stronger evidence base to draw on, then we've got a really good argument to these funding bodies and then we've got OTs that actually can do what they know makes a difference um, in the right context and actually be paid for it. <laughs> Yeah, because I guess in, even clinically, uh, when I was working clinically, a lot of the ideas and the concepts that, say, I used to use in practice have an evidence base, just not an OT one, where I would utilize it. So, for example, solution-focused brief intervention. It's social work. It's buried in social work. It's their intervention, but I can use it in an occupation-based context so I'm not using it exactly the same as a social worker does. The basic frameworks are still the same, but there's not a lot. I think Rad Ghoul published a little bit, but other than that, there's not a lot of evidence specific to using it in OT. So is that the kind of thing you would think then I should go and publish something, do some research. Exactly. And I think, yeah, you were, I think that's what you were trying to get at a minute ago and I couldn't quite get my head around it, Brock, but I totally understand what you mean now, you know, like a, uh, yeah, an evidenced kind of intervention in one area, but we can put our OT slant on it. That is new knowledge. And that is, that is exactly what does need to be published. Because I think one of the big ones at the moment, and I was talking to someone only the other day about it, is, say, mindfulness. Mindfulness is just exploding in every aspect of healthcare. It doesn't matter what profession you're in at the moment. But this, and this, I've seen a few pub, like sporadic publications over the last sort of five years or so within OT. But there's not a lot and say the way I used to use it is probably very different to the way some other people used to use it. Uh, even the concepts that I interrelate with it are very different to say like a social worker might or like a psychologist might. Or And I think there's a, there's a lot of that happening in practice. There's a lot of – and that was I guess one of the, the cool things or one of the reasons why originally I started – a mental health Facebook group years and years ago called MH4T and then even this podcast was there's so many cool things going on around that people just never hear about and I have a certain skill set that I'm able to try and you know get that information out to people a little bit easier but I, I definitely think that for especially for some of the really effective stuff that people are finding, like they, it needs to be looked into. It needs to have rigor. It needs to have added rigor and be published so that. And, and I think every time I think both of you have mentioned it at different points today um, that you want to you know be able to translate it to the person on the other side of Australia. And I think it's about learning from others' mistakes as well. Like so, you don't. It's not touch parking. We don't have to bump into everything to try and work out where we need to go. If we, you know, it's going to be a little more effort than not doing anything, obviously. But 
I think if we find mentors and they're out there, I think one of the challenges is going to be how do you find those mentors? Um, or, or even one step back is how do you even know what sort of mentor you're looking for uh, would probably be the first stage. And I think it's the limited, people's limited, and I'm putting myself in the same basket, um, knowledge around, well, this is my idea. Like, how would I even look at that? Because how would I, because I assume that would determine the kind of mentor or who I would need to actually look into that. Is there any tips, places people can go, books, research, anything people can read do you think that might actually help them in that very initial, like, okay, this is my idea, what do I do? What sort of, what, who do I, who am I looking for? Um, I think with it, like, especially finding the right mentor or person to talk to, it's good to identify someone through going to conferences, seeing if they did a keynote and they kind of seemed cool, you liked what they presented or reading um, articles. If there's someone that's published a lot, you know, done some mindfulness publications and you thought that person, you like their approach, their way of thinking, it's totally okay to cold email these people, totally, you know, and you just you just say, you know, I'm so-and-so, I'm re I really like your work, um, I'm looking for, you know, a little bit of guidance, would it be possible to have a half-hour Zoom meeting every month or, um, you know, you can be a little bit um, specific about what you want of their time and some of those people might not reply, some of those people might reply and say, awesome, definitely, some of them might reply and say, thanks for the email, I can suggest you contact so-and-so or so-and-so and so-and-so. Because that's, yeah, that, but I, both Anna and I, you can go through formal mentoring programs, like our research institute had a formal kind of program. I think OT Australia are just setting up a formal mentoring program, I thought. Do you believe there's a mentor program yeah. of something? I can't remember exactly what it's called. It may have been just called the mentor yeah. program. I'm not sure. But and yeah. it seem, it feels a bit awkward and we all get that. We totally feel a bit awkward, like just going, hi, I really like what you do. Can we chat? But it's fine. It's a bit stalkerish. <laughs> you just have to put yourself out there. And, um, yeah, we. I still have a number of, like, formal mentors but also informal mentors who have been too shy to contact still and just stalk a little bit try and <laughs> try and chat at conferences so it's a whole lot of different like levels of mentorship that you can go for but don't be afraid to go all out because most senior kind of researchers that I've spoken to they're always saying get a mentor get a mentor get a mentor so unfortunately those are the ones that have to be the mentors because they're the seniors in the field <laughs> I guess that's one of the things like I'm networking is something that I've always, I've never really thought about. I've just done it. I've just been, I don't know. It's a, it's a skill that I have. I've just done it, but I've also had the privilege of being able to go to quite a few conferences. And I've said to people like, because people have asked me who haven't sort of been in that circle, like why I go, what do you learn? That sort of thing. And I'm like, my number one thing about conferences, I don't go for the presentations go for the networking. The presentations is like a business card. They're like usually five or seven minutes. Then you're not going to learn anything in the presentation, but you might hear something that'll go, that sounds really interesting. I need to talk to that person. And like that's like I've interviewed Jesse Wilson. Like that's how we met because I just happened to, I've never heard of her before, never met her. I just happened to fall across one of her presentations in the, at the national conference 
in Melbourne uh, and went, I, I have to talk to this person because that sounded really amazing, like the little spiel that she was able to give in the short period that you're given at a conference. Um, but conferences are about that networking. So even if it's the smaller conferences, like your state conference, I know pretty much everywhere in America has a state federation and a state conference or state association. Uh, so they have state conferences. I know in Australia we have state conferences. I know in the UK they have, I don't know, they're not called state, but I don't know if they're called conference conferences. I don't know. Area conferences, district conferences maybe, I don't know. Um, but even some of the smaller ones, you, conferences will generally speak to or attract a lot of more academic OTs, a lot of people that are doing research, especially seeing a lot of universities Lectures are measured on publications and presentations and that sort of thing. So you're going to find a lot more of those kinds of people at conferences. So I think I think it's important that you, probably more important that you don't necessarily start looking for the one, just start talking to people. Talk to yeah, anyone. It doesn't yeah. even have to be your topic. Anyone that like Jesse's presentation was about uh, adolescent kids with autism that's nothing like i've ever looked at before but the method that she did it and the fact that it was really occupation based her actual research was what appealed to me so i'm like i'll talk to her about that just talk to whoever and anyone who sort of strikes any kind of chord with you and your interests uh and you'll build up with this network definitely yeah, and I also think um, try and identify, like if you want to do something specifically within your workplace, try and identify whether there's someone else within your workplace that has done a pro like a research project before, is doing one, is thinking of doing one, because then you can kind of learn the process, I guess, side from specific within your workplace about how you go about research from that individual. Um, and of course, you know, letting, you know, talking to your supervisor about, hey, this is something I'm interested in because they may have more connections, more ideas. Um, if you're working for a big organisation, it's likely that at least one person or a few people have been involved in some sort of research project. I think a lot of the big, or over here anyway, a lot of the big health services, maybe not on a team basis, but definitely on, you know, a district or sometimes state basis, will have a research contact will have someone yes. who's almost the overseer of their area, their district, their state's research across the whole group, and they would be a really good contact to, to try and dig up. Some of the private health services, I'm sure, have the same. Um, yeah. There tends to be, in my experience, a lot more research from a clinical level coming out of medicine. So it may even be a matter of touching base with the people in that field that are doing research. It could be nothing to do with what you're looking into, but touching base with them and just finding out, well, who are their contacts in that district might open up some doors. Yeah, definitely. And even sometimes, um, you know, if you're, if you're really new to the area, like, you know, a lot of researchers might be fine if you, you come along to their research team meetings to learn about more about what they're doing or just how they're progressing with the research, what they've done. Um, you know, you can ask, you know, is it okay if I attend your research meeting to get an idea of what happens? Um, but yeah, it's totally okay to ask those sorts of questions. Anything else to add, Kitty? Um, I, Rant I think we've covered a lot. It's been so fun. <laughs> I could just keep talking like this for hours. Um, I always had, from the Telethon Institute where Anna and I did our um, PhDs, it was established 
initially by Professor Fiona Stanley and um, some people might be familiar with her and the hospital, the new hospital in um, Perth has just been named after her absolutely incredible woman and um, huge inspiration for me as a young um you know, PhD student, occupational therapist and the things that she did as a woman, it does, did, does, still doing as a woman, um, mother, grandmother, an amazing um, research person and a medical person. But anyway, she would come to the institute and do presentations to us and an epic sense of humour as well, which I loved also. And she left with... Um, seven tips of highly successful research careers and I've remembered one of them this was probably you know from 2012 so a little while ago now um, but one of them she said surround yourself by people who challenge you and I really liked that because um, there was a lot of people at the institute that challenged me oh, in a good way oh in every way you know some <laughs> some of them academically, <laughs> personally, um, professionally, you know, you know, in every sense of the word, but then every, every, you know, instant that I came uh, up faced with a challenge, you know, from a person or from whatever it was, it was like, this is an opportunity for growth and development and learning. And it was a really challenging at times it's really challenging you know that learning process through the phd and as an early career researcher um, especially in field of um, disability where you're also um, challenged by the parents of um, these young people who are really having sometimes a really challenging time themselves and can sometimes project that onto you so there's a lot of ways that um, I've been challenged and I just thought that that one piece of advice has really helped me um, to thrive on that where sometimes you know, some of those challenges have made me want to crawl into a ball and think I'm not doing it right. This is wrong. You know, how could I have been so silly to think that? It's actually like, whoa, you've challenged me. That's awesome. I've got to figure out how to do this differently and better next time. And I just feel like that's really helped me. Um, and even with the transition into this um, teaching research position, I've definitely been challenged on a whole new um different set of levels now as well um that's a very different ballgame <laughs> to clinical it is it is so that's just my um my stone to leave you with to rock yeah no that's that that's awesome and that's i think i was talking with i was talking with gail whiteford a couple of weeks ago and that was similar to the sort of thing she was saying but if we sort of you can extrapolate that out to a professional thing and that's why i was asking about like whether we should be looking at more bringing stuff in from outside the profession because I've seen a lot of people that'll justify where OT is with regards to research and evidence as, oh, we're a very new profession. I'm like, yeah, we're a very new profession, but we're surrounded by professions that have been around for thousands of years and we don't just have to learn off each other. So I think looking at, you know, that's OT. Yep, okay, we're the big person in a little room. We'll go to a different room where we're not. We go to a room where we can learn off the psychs, off the doctors, off the nurses, off the social workers, off the groundsmen, off the whoever. I I, I know I know Tina Champagne's published some work with engineers, and that's kind of, that kind of thing. That itself is going to expand our evidence base and expand the profession itself at a much more rapid rate than if we just were waiting for us to do it ourselves from within. It's just not going to happen. 
even developmental theories say that that's not how we learn. Like we teach that to first year OTs, and as a profession, we need to like take that advice. Definitely, I think. No, yeah. I think that you're exactly right. Awesome, wicked. Is there anywhere that you like people? You want people to be able to contact you, whether it's Twitter or email or whatever you want. Feel free to shout out whatever you want. Um, yeah. I'm trying to be a bit of a Twitter user myself, but it's <laughs> it's fun. Twitter's always good, um, but also more than happy to receive emails on my um, Southern Cross Uni email. What's your Twitter handle? Truly underscore radical underscore, which is from a quote that I heard of, of conference, and it's the quote was, to be truly radical is to make hope possible rather than despair convincing. And it was this really awesome old school uh, professor who was doing research in quality of life and intellectual disability. And he was trying to inspire the audience to be truly radical in their approaches rather than, um, you know, to make hope possible rather than despair convincing. It, it was It was awesome. <laughs> That's very deep. That's not what I pictured at all when I first saw you. Handle, I'm like, it's obviously some kind of rebel or something like that. No, very deep. <laughs> It is just rad. <laughs> just rad. Just truly radical. <laughs> and yourself, Anna? Uh, yeah, please follow me on Twitter, um, which is at A and my surname, which I might need to spell out. You might need so to, So yeah. at, at A-U-R-B-A-N-O-W-I-C-Z. Um, and also my RMIT institutional email, which um, I'll send to Brock and he can pop up on the website as well. But I guess, um, yeah, I'm happy for people to like contact myself. If you're kind of thinking about research and you don't know where to start um, and don't know who to contact, I'm happy for people to kind of email. Um, and also if anyone's doing some really cool research um, in OT or with adults on the spectrum in disability, like I would likewise love to hear from it. Um, yeah, so please just get in contact. Thank you so much. Thanks, bro. It's been a lot of fun and I've learnt my head's kind of like exploding. Oh, my God, man, I've got to go and do some research I, now. You're inspired. <laughs> I, I am. I'm looking forward am. to your publication um, coming out ah. soon like we've just discussed. <laughs> yeah. I guess, yeah, I guess that's one thing. Like I never um, – like I've basically been doing full-time research for like four, how many years? Five, like eight, eight years. Um, that's scary to think. Eight years. <laughs> um, like, but you know, like I guess I never thought, you know, that I would be a full-time researcher when I was doing my undergrad. Like I, and I guess that's another thing. Like, you know, as an undergrad student, um, I, I think most people think, that, oh yeah, I'm going to be a clinical you know, OT, um, but I guess kind of inspiring more people to do research, even if it's not full time, but like having those skills because they can come in handy when you're working clinically, doing quality improvement projects and that kind of stuff. Um, and you get to yeah, travel all over the world, which has been awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. That is a huge, huge plus. Got to travel to many places because of my research. Yeah, Anna and I's um, conferences, I would often align in awesome spots like New York a couple, a couple of years <laughs> in a row. And, Funny how that oh, works. It's fine. Hawaii. That's <laughs> where that's